This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 369th episode... We have some news, way, way less news than we've had the last few weeks with SVP, but we do have a fantastic interview with Richard Fallon, author of Reimagining Dinosaurs in Late Victorian and Edwardian Literature, pretty self-explanatory title, Mm -hmm. but it's always really awesome to talk about how dinosaur depictions have changed over time. And the fact that they were present in late Victorian literature. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting the way they popped up and the different roles they played in in the stories. We also have Dinosaur of the Day Saturnalia with a Christmas tie-in, as well as a fun fact, which also has a Christmas tie-in. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons. This week, we have a new patron to thank, and that is James. Thank you very much, James, for joining in, in the holiday season, giving us Christmas gifts. <laughs> And thank you to all of our patrons for helping to support the show. This week, our shout-out drawing winners are TRX Dinosaurs, Lucas and Eli, Joaquin, Eric, Blue Gollimer, Danny Hermes, Jonah, Quinn Pomeroy, and Ellen. Yay, thank you, everybody, and happy holidays. And now jumping into the news. Yeah, I don't have any news this week. We're mixing it up. I also got to start our bonus content for SVP. Yeah, at least the first one. Did you start the second one too? Oh, maybe not. A little spoiler about what's coming up if you haven't listened to it yet, or if I haven't released it yet. I'm not sure what order these things are going to come out in. (laughs) (laughs) So as I said, jumping into the news. In Upper Bavaria, Germany, experts recently assembled a 36 foot or about 11 meter long T-Rex skeleton. How many T-Rexes are they getting over there in Europe? I don't know, but this one's actually coming back to the U.S. Okay, good. To its homeland. (laughs) It's an interesting story. 75 of the bones are real. So the original fossils included skull bones, hip bones, leg bones, ribs, and vertebrae. And then 300 are made of a special plastic. And the skeleton weighs about 1,650 pounds or 750 kilograms. It was assembled at the Altmühltal Dinosaur Museum. And then somebody in the U.S., bought this skeleton for about 8 million euros. So it's going to be dismantled, I think, in a way so that it can easily be reassembled and then sent to the U.S. and then rebuilt there by the same team. And the plan is for this T-Rex skeleton to be accessible to the public and put on display somewhere. Okay. Yeah, actually, it's kind of funny because I was saying, oh, it's good it's coming back. But I'd rather it stayed in Europe in a museum, then came back to the U.S. into a private collection. <laughs> so hopefully, yeah, it's, it's going to be owned by a museum and it isn't just on loan to a museum. 
It sounds like it's owned privately and will be loaned somewhere to be publicly displayed and available for research. Okay. Well, hopefully that that loan turns into a permanent transfer of ownership sometime soon. Yeah. Because I know nobody's going to research it if it's not owned by the museum because most of the publications won't publish on it. Mm. Well, we'll see what happens. If we hear anything else, any updates, we'll keep you posted. In London, the Natural History Museum dressed up their animatronic T-Rex in a Christmas sweater. (laughs) Cool. We had a few listeners who shared this one with us. Thank you. It's called a Jurassic Jumper. I like the alliteration. And the sweater was custom made from 100% recycled materials. And the sweater, if you look closely, it's navy red and green and white with snowflakes and fir trees. And then there's dinosaurs on the sweater of Triceratops stegosaurus. T-Rex and Diplodocus. That's pretty funny. Mm -hmm. I like how you kept calling it a sweater, even though they call it the Jurassic Jumper. Oh, well, in the article I read, they kept referring to it as a sweater. That's really funny. Sweaters are jumpers in the UK, right? Pretty sure. I think so. Can you imagine making a custom one for an animatronic dinosaur? That would be difficult. It might be a fun challenge if you're really familiar with knitting. Right. Well, you're... Yeah, because the arm length, the proportions would be a little different. And It's like making a tent, though. It'd be mm, so huge. That's true. <laughs> they probably had to stitch it on it after the fact, too. It'd be pretty hard to, like, stretch it over its enormous head. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also kind of funny that it's a dinosaur wearing dinosaurs on it. It's sort of like a person wearing a shirt with, like, a gorilla, a person, <laughs> and a dolphin, <laughs> just, like, random oh, other mammals. Other mammals? <laughs> yeah. But also themselves on it. <laughs> oh, there's oh yeah, there is a T-Rex on the T-Rex yeah. sweater. Yeah, it's pretty fun. And then our last bit of news is Jurassic World the Exhibition is going to Denver, Colorado starting March 4th of next year. Oh, cool. We've been wanting to see that. That's kind of closer. I keep wondering when it'll get to California. <laughs> I hope it gets to California. It's getting further west. Yeah. California or Las Vegas would be doable. Mm. Denver's not too far, but... It's pretty far. Yeah. Our electric car only goes about 150 miles <laughs> on a charge. It would take a lot of charges. So it's going to be at the National Western Center. It's a 20,000 square foot exhibit, and you can see Bumpy, as well as Brachiosaurus, T-Rex, and Velociraptor. And the tickets are on sale now. Oh, Bumpy. I love that Bumpy. Yeah, someday you'll be able to see Bumpy. Somewhere. <laughs> Might have to wait till I go to Universal Studios or something. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. 
Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Richard. But as always, we talked for a very long time. So if you want to hear an extended version of it, you can head over to patreon.com slash inodino and listen to it there. We're joined this week by Richard Fallon, who's a Leverhulme Trust Early Career Fellow at the University of Birmingham, who studies the interactions and overlaps between literature and science. He's also the author of the book Reimagining Dinosaurs in Late Victorian and Edwardian Literature. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the book, like, kind of broad strokes what it's about. It's it's how fiction and journalism made dinosaurs popular as opposed to dinosaurs on display in, like, U.S. natural history museums. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's that's very fair. I mean, I focus on a period when there weren't many dinosaurs in displays or in, in any natural history museum, really. Kind of the late 19th century is the core of the book. Of course, all these sort of the most famous displays in American Museum of Natural History in Chicago and Pittsburgh, they're all early 20th century. Mm-hmm. So I'm focusing on a period when if you want to see a dinosaur, basically you have to look in a magazine or, or, or open a book, which is kind of the peak of the interest for me about it. How do you get into this topic? Yeah, I mean, I always liked dinosaurs when I was young, but because I took literature as a degree and focused on that, obviously it seemed, you know, hard to breach those uh, those two aspects. But there's a there's quite a surprising amount of work on literature and dinosaurs in the 19th century, because obviously this is a time when dinosaur is coined. A lot of interesting novelists are interested in dinosaurs, and a lot of scientists, like of course Richard Owen, are interested in literature. And so there's a good amount of scholarship from literary studies and the history of science on the intersections between these areas. And that's where I kind of brought in my angle about the late 19th century and what's unique about that period for dinosaurs and for literature. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely still going on because if you just said to a random person, what's the intersection between literature and science, or even if you specified dinosaurs, they'd probably say like Jurassic Park, obviously. Mm. It's a very famous book. It got a lot of people interested in dinosaurs, but it started way, way before (laughs) Jurassic Park did. There's definitely phases, aren't there? And you you say Jurassic Park, obviously that's that's dinomania. There's kind of, you know, different levels of dinomania. My ones are kind of, I argue that it's when dinosaur starts to become a household word. Obviously, it's still not 
Jurassic Park levels of kind of blockbusting, um, you know, no one cares about woolly mammoths when Jurassic Park's come out. <laughs> My period is the time when, you know, in the, in the 19th century, dinosaurs are not the, the extinct animal everyone loves. They're kind of competing with the moa and the mammoth and the megatherium. How interesting. Until I argue the period when I start to look at it. I didn't realize megatherium was in contention. That's a really cool one, though. Megatherium, because it's, I mean, it's what George Cuvier is one of the first animals to be declared definitely extinct. Mm. obviously it's one of the first animals to have its entire skeleton reconstructed and shown in museums in europe and so it becomes a bit of a byword particularly because its name is quite funny it's kind of a name that is bandied about by you know authors like dickens and thackeray all these kind of novels it's, it's, it's used to mean something pompous and funny and so the victorians quite obsessed with megatherium possibly it does help that the british museum has a big megatherium which is kind of the centerpiece of its collection which as i'm sure you know that specimen is this kind of copied out in casts across the world really mm. so if you go to a museum in the 19th century you don't see an impressive dinosaur for the most part you see the megatherium which is <laughs> you know this huge rearing giant sloth and it's much more spectacular than you know a bit of squished iguanodon somewhere in a, in a cabinet yeah did they the name megatherium does mean giant sloth right or am i wrong i think it's giant beast i think theorem is beast yeah okay. did they know it was a sloth at the time I think so. I mean, yeah, I think that was what was curious about it because it's kind of you know, it's indication <laughs> that the past was the same as the present, but bigger, <laughs> or at least it seemed that way. I guess at that time, everything, you know, most of the stereotype is things were bigger in the past. Mm -hmm. The sloths seemed like the key, the key example of that. Yeah, even the sloths were bigger. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's interesting. So Megatherium was more popular at the time, but then somehow people started writing about dinosaurs. Yeah, so, I mean, Richard Owen coins dinosaur in 1842, but as, as the kind of scholarship has pointed to, no one actually particularly cares or finds that interesting. <laughs> they don't find it interesting scientifically. The public certainly doesn't catch on. As I say, mainly there's there's nothing much to show in museums in the same way as other specimens are interesting. A lot of scientists don't really think it's a particularly useful term. But of course, discoveries in the US by Cope and Marsh and Co., dinosaurs start to become something much more interesting. And of course, by the very end of the century, there's something you can see in a museum. Uh, and that's when Megatherium starts you know, to take a back seat. <laughs> mm -hmm. Interesting. So what was the, when was the first book published, or at least that you found, about dinosaurs in a more pop culture-y way? It depends on it. Is a dinosaur a dinosaur before the word is coined? Because <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, you have popular stuff about Iguanodon, Megalosaurus, Hyliosaurus before the word dinosaur is coined, you have Gideon Mantle, the, the Sussex geologist, writing popular works, particularly The Wonders of Geology in 1838. That's a big one for popularizing dinosaurs. Mm. As I say, you know, there's no there's no dinosaurs in it, ostensibly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's got a you know, it's got a beautiful frontispiece painted by John Martin, celebrity artist who painted scenes of, you know, the destruction of Pompeii and the biblical catastrophes. He does a beautiful illustration, one of the first published illustrations of a dinosaur in in a book that would have been a lot of people's introduction to them but as they say the word dinosaur even though there's plenty of dinosaurs throughout the century megalosaurus is in the first page of dickens's novel bleak house mm -hmm. really at least i argue in this book it's only really the 1890s particularly after a book called extinct monsters written by a guy called henry hutchinson that dinosaurs start to become something that or at least book reviewers obviously you can only go by for the most part by the reviewers they pick up on the dinosaur they start to recognize that dinosaur represents a lot of very different looking animals, but it's actually more interesting than 
what Owen had conceived dinosaurs to be, which are effectively just kind of giant lizards, which is quite interesting, <laughs> but it's not as weird as some of the other stuff. I mean, they like Megatherium, they also like Pterodactyl. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, nothing was as, as strange as a Pterodactyl or a Plesiosaurus, animals that looked nothing like anything that was currently alive. Iguanodon was basically a giant iguana for a while, which is, mm-hmm. which is you know, it's cool, but... <laughs> <laughs> but we've seen those. <laughs> That's really interesting. I had always assumed that by the time they did the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, that that would have like really spurred interest in dinosaurs. But I guess you're right. At that point, they were basically just giant lizards. So it's like, okay, yeah, there used to be giant lizards. There were also giant other things. So Yeah. I mean, you can tell by the what people use instead of dinosaurs. So if people refer to from about, you know, early 19th century to towards the end of the century, really, people talk about saurians. And that word means iguanodon, pterodactyl, plesiosaurus, ichthyosaurus. Everything's a saurian. <laughs> very unusual to see someone use the word dinosaur and even more unusual and I, I mean this in terms of the general public mm-hmm. but of course a lot of scientists also try to kind of assassinate the word dinosaur <laughs> like th huxley the general public uses the word saurian if they use the word dinosaur they probably don't use it accurately to refer to only iguanodon megalosaurus etc they use it is a kind of pompous technical term you often see victorians use the word dinosaurian and it's kind of supposed to mean gobbledygook <laughs> you know so when I, the period I start to look at, it's when people start to use the word dinosaur, they also know what it refers to, and they use it in a kind of colloquial way. In the same way as a dinosaur now, obviously, doesn't really have any sense of jargon to it. It's just a vernacular word, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you said Huxley didn't like the word dinosaur? Yeah. I mean, when he starts to kind of reevaluate dinosaurs as being more bird-like, I mean, he's, he's Owen, Richard Owen, the coiner of dinosaurs, greatest enemy, really, Huxley. <laughs> so their work is often kind of opposed to each other. Huxley kind of sees dinosaur as being maybe a smaller subcategory of Ornithoscelida. His mm. term obviously recently kind of revived in, in a different sense. And this is kind of a short period when he's trying to kind of, he says he, he, he can't entirely get rid of dinosaur because he thinks it's, it's caught on a little bit too much in the scientific community, but he's clearly trying to push it into being not very important to category. <laughs> and really dinosaur is saved by Marsh. And I, something I talk about in the book also is saved by Marsh in opposition to another kind of great paleontologist of this period, Harry Seeley, who's effectively, of course, declares that dinosaur is not really, not a useful scientific term. Mm-hmm. Um, it represents two different, not hugely related groups of animals. But Marsh gets popularization <laughs> rather than Seeley, who's notoriously kind of prickly and, and not particularly good at popularizing <laughs> his ideas. Not, <laughs> Wait, Mar- so- not that Marsh is actually not particularly I was going to say, idea. yeah. I think he just gets a bit lucky, really, because <laughs> Henry Hutchinson uses his subdivisions of a dinosauria his name's over Copes, which I think is also helpful. Oh, okay. Time. I was going to ask about yeah, Cope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why Marsh, not Cope? <laughs> Cope writes a very angry review in the American Naturalist of Henry Hutchinson's books, basically complaining. He actually reprints one of the plates, which is a, a restoration of Brontosaurus and renames it Camarasaurus. He talks about <laughs> um, Agathalmus in the review, even though Hutchinson talks about Triceratops. <laughs> uh, and obviously, there's a little bit of a boost for Cope because this is just before Knight's famous illustrations um, in the Century mm. magazine. But of course, Agathamus and um, <laughs> whatever he calls Stegosaurus, these are dying in the water really by this time. And Hutchinson's book, about printed, it's a British book. He's a British author. It's really the only American book you can buy in America that talks about Copenhagen's discoveries with any kind of level of detail and with like, you know, realistic illustrations, which is, again, part of the argument in my book is it's really down to literature. Often, strangely, British writers writing about American dinosaurs who set things off rather than, say, Cope and Marsh, who really, for most of their careers, are pretty rubbish 
are getting their ideas out there and seem to be much more concerned with just naming as many dinosaurs as they can, sabotaging <laughs> each other. <laughs> the fun stuff. That's interesting. It's British writers. Is it, do you think ultimately because the term was coined by a British person? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I'm, obviously there is a kind of migration, isn't there? You've got dinosaurs rep- representing specifically British reptiles to dinosaurs being, well, the mo- most famous for the specimens in America. I don't see a huge amount of nationalism, apart from maybe when Carnegie presents the Diplodocus to the Naturalist Museum in 1905, and the kind of <laughs> all the speakers are a little bit cagey about and awkward about what this might represent. I think partially the reason is Britain has a much more developed market for popular science, whereas mm. a lot of American publications uh, throughout the 19th century are, you know, either plagiarized from British works because there's no copyright until the 1890s. You can just nick something and get away with it. Um, <laughs> Perhaps there's less of a market for it. I think it's developing in the US this time. But in many ways, it's just easier for someone to just make something from the UK. And Hutchinson happens to write his book, Extinct Monsters, in 1892. It's a very well-made book. It's a great kind of Christmas gift at the time, as all the adverts say. <laughs> and that kind of takes off. And you see, I mean, if you look in American newspapers at this time, you know, when they want to bring in a dinosaur for a caricature or a cartoon or something, they've just traced the illustrations in Hutchinson's book done by a, a Dutch-British artist called uh, Joseph Smith, hmm. who's really the, the main, he's really the lost lost big name in paleo art yeah. around the time of Charles Knight. Smith is the earliest restorer in any kind of really detailed sense of dinosaurs like Brontosaurus, Triceratops, Ceratosaurus. And yet his name is not really out there. I think Charles Knight came along soon after him and took over because admittedly, Knight's work is much better. Hmm. <laughs> and there's no denying it. Um, but Smith got there first in, in a lot of senses. Interesting. Yeah, I'm looking at pictures of Smith's work because mm. I am not familiar with it. But they they look, it's interesting because they in some ways look more modern in that some of them are a little more active posed mm. than some of Knight's, but they do have that really long, skinny, lizardy look to them that Knight yeah. sort of moved away from, I would say. Yeah, there's two things that are struggling about that. The first is that what he basically does is put skin on Marsh's skeletal restorations. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's fairly honest about that. And this Harry Seeley writes this very angry review in Nature saying, you know, he's just stuck stuck skin on Marsh and he shouldn't have listened to Marsh because Marsh is <laughs> misguided. Um, <laughs> there's, there's definitely a Seeley-Marsh rivalry, um, which is is underexamined. But also, because this is happening quite early in, in dinosaurs, modern history, the ideas of dinosaurs as being kind of, you know, sluggish, useless kind of things are embryonic, really. They're not fully there yet. So mm. Marsh says Triceratops went extinct because its head was too big. And a lot of, you know, reviewers of Hutchinson love this because Hutchinson makes a big thing of that. But the dinosaur in its kind of early 20th century lethargic kind of mode is not is not fully decided yet. I mean, we've all seen Knight's Sleeping Laylaps, you know, mm-hmm. the kind of energetic dinosaurs that kind of went out of fashion for a while. Mm. Uh, and Smith, you know, he doesn't have a stereotype of what dinosaurs are like, really, at this point to, to go with. But as I say, he's also, you know, as you look at these pictures, he's, he's pretty much just taken Marsh's thing and put some skin on it like a, a bin liner over um, a skeleton. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, I mean, the the shrink-wrapping dinosaurs, as some people call it, is not, yes, still yeah. not lost. It still happens from time to time, <laughs> so you can't judge it he's too harshly. He's not quite as extreme as some of the, um, yeah, de- deoxygenated <laughs> shrink-wrapped kind of, um, <laughs> they're a bit more baggy. Yeah. Seeley calls them, he compares them to the stuffed toys in the uh, an arcade in, in London. <laughs> <laughs> this makes me wonder how many rivalries Marsh had. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I've read some of. I mean, Marsh's Yale have all Marsh's letters. Well, I say all of Marsh's, but letters to Marsh online, um, which is a really great resource. And he's people, you know, obviously Marsh is the image of him is is being a pretty unpleasant guy. Henry Woodward, who's the curator of geology at the Natural History Museum in London, or the British Museum of Natural History, he he has a really fun relationship with Marsh. But unfortunately, because Marsh's side don't respond, it's hard to know if Woodward was just being chatty and friendly, and Marsh was just. <laughs> You know, <laughs> being cold and rubbish. Henry Woodward writes as if Marsh is a great friend of his family, of his wife. Marsh sends his wife stamps, a stamp collection. And so in fact, there's maybe a side of Marsh there, which is a bit more um, genial. But obviously it does, it does help when you're not Marsh's enemy, you're not competing. Yeah. yeah. Same with Richard Owen. Richard Owen, notoriously lovely guy, if you weren't trying to describe dinosaurs <laughs> or do anything relating to paleontology. Everyone says he's a lovely guy, but obviously you start to argue with him on a scientific matter and he becomes... It's just kind of satanic. <laughs> really? I've never heard Richard Owen described as a nice guy, but I guess I've never we've, looked into his personal side. Yeah, before. we've only looked yeah. at the paleontology side. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, I mean, he's great friends with Dickens. He's great friends with, you know, a lot of the Victorian elites. And of course, Richard Owen is not, you know, he doesn't come from the elite. He, is, he has pulled himself up by his bootstraps, basically. So there is an obsequiousness to him sometimes, which can be a bit grating. But he, you know, he's, I think he felt he worked very hard to get where he was. And it gave him a you know a certain level of desire to constantly be right to prove himself. Mm. But you know, there's funny anecdotes about him. He liked he wrote some um, serial horror stories early in his career for periodicals. His wife used to joke about her. This is a lot of this is coming from um, my PhD supervisor Gowan Dawson wrote a book, Show Me the Bone, on the Cuvierian method of paleontology, which Owen was a famous proponent of. A lot of this stuff, a lot of this book, Show Me the Bone, is about Owen. He comes off in many ways quite bad, but also you see the human <laughs> Owen. Like when, as I say, he's uh, he's dissecting animals at his home and his wife makes him smoke lots of cigars, so she can't smell it so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. What was the what's the Cuvier method of uh science or paleontology? Yeah, so this is so this is George Cuvier again, the guy who reassembled the Megatherium effectively, really the founder of paleontology, French author alive late eighteenth, early nineteenth century. Cuvier's claim was that he could discern the entirety of an animal just by a single bone because if you have enough knowledge of comparative anatomy but a certain groove in you know even the smallest vertebrae indicates necessarily a whale or a pig or, or whatever and so cuvier had a reputation for having you know i wish he played up an almost supernatural ability to um detect an animal from very little fragmentary remains and this mm-hmm. method owen took up famously in a, in a kind of propaganda coup he received a, a bone from New Zealand, which he predicted would have come from a struthius bird, he said, which of course soon turned out to be the mower. And he was right. He'd just <laughs> had a single bone and he'd known via this quasi-supernatural, quasi-almost mathematical ability to just determine the rest of it. Although, again, Gowan Dawson talks about how Owen did actually know that he'd been told it came from this kind of bird. <laughs> and the Cuvieri method is, is effectively disproved by later 19th century paleontologists, especially because evolution, which Cuvier didn't believe in, Owen believed in in only a very strange way. Uh, You can't know, you know, there's certain animals you never could have predicted Mm -hmm. they would be from a bone, especially things like dinosaurs. American dinosaurs are great proof of this. Cuvier in 1830, if he'd had a plate from a stegosaurus, you know, he'd never have been able to determine what the rest of that animal was intrinsically. Mm -hmm. Cuvier's example was always that, you know, if you have a uh, hoof, it's not going to be carnivorous. You know, that was his kind of layman's mm. example. Oh, yeah. And obviously, Cuvier was a brilliant anatomist, but 
what he really had was just a very good memory for what he'd, <laughs> what he'd studied, as opposed to almost like an equation for knowing the rest of an animal. But Owen likes this, and Owen's often called the British Cuvier. Uh, he's Britain's <laughs> most famous paleontologist. He's basically a celebrity. And he, of course, loves this reputation that he's got, you know, the ability to just, you know, hold a single bone and contemplate it. And then, you know, the rest of it appears in his entire, in his imagination, in its entirety. And it's a very romantic image. It's something that appears in Sherlock Holmes. Conan Doyle compares Sherlock Holmes' ability to understand a whole case from a single clue to Cuvier's ability to understand a whole animal from a single bone. <laughs> That's in the story, The Five Orange Pips. Oh, wow. Even though by this point, that as science has been disproved, it survives in popular culture. I mean, I should associate Arthur Conan Doyle more with dinosaurs because Lost World, <laughs> but I, yes. I always, I often forget. <laughs> and it seems like he was very involved. Yeah. Did find dinosaur footprints not far from his house. <laughs> oh, uh, wow. Iguanodon footprints. That definitely uh, helps. He was very proud of those. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. Beyond the Great South Wall is, is mentioned, mm. uh, I think, in your book. <laughs> as the brontosaurus as carnivorous and able to hypnotize. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I talk quite a bit about this because I think it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's such a product of a very specific time. I mean, obviously, paleontologists were under no illusions about brontosaurus being herbivorous at that time. So it's not like he's kind of Frank Savile, the author, has, you know, based that on any research. I mean, it's hypnotic because in the 1890s, villains were often hypnotic. You've got Sven Gorley, this kind of anti-Semitic villain from the novel Trilby a few years before. Mm. Mostly where our term Sven Gorley comes from. He's, that book is one of the best sellers of the century, particularly in America. And so after that, a lot of villains are hypnotic. Dracula, just a few years before Great South Wall, is hypnotic. Mm. And the Brontosaurus is kind of, even though it is a dinosaur, it's described in kind of anthropomorphic way. You know, it's kind of villainous. It's got leering eyes. It's kind of described in the way that a you know a human villain <laughs> in the novels of that time would be. But Brontosaurus is is in the news because of this. Uh, well, the famous New York Journal cover of a Brontosaurus rearing up against a skyscraper that came out December just before the novel, so a year before. Mm. It's reproduced in a lot of British newspapers. So a British periodical called the Golden Penny reproduces this kind of very American image: a dinosaur, American dinosaur, and an American skyscraper. And they replaced the skyscraper, which is, uh, I think, the New York insurance building, with um, the Duke of York's column from London. It's actually much, much smaller than a skyscraper, so it really diminishes the dinosaur. But it kind of, in an, uh, an eighteen ninety sense, goes viral. And so brontosauruses are really in the air in 1899. This author, Frank Savile, is obviously, you know, he's a bit of an opportunist. He wants to fit everything he can in. He, got, he gets kind of Mesoamerican culture in because there's lots of interest in that at the time, especially in relation to the idea that you know, these relics are related to Atlantis, so that's popular. He's basically just cramming everything he can into that novel. <laughs> and obviously, there was no Brontosaurus skeleton anyone could look at. Brontosaurus was something that it was getting better known, mainly because of Hutchinson's book with Smith's restoration mm -hmm. of Brontosaurus. But it's still, what, six years before anyone can see a Brontosaurus skeleton or any sauropod skeleton in a museum, not till 1905. So Brontosaurus is kind of up for grabs a bit. You can, you can do what you want with it for that short period. <laughs> um, and there's no one to disillusion you about the fact that it's not quite as big as some of these things say. And it, obviously, it's, it's, you get a good look at its teeth and you realize it's not, <laughs> it doesn't look very carnivorous. <laughs> and it certainly doesn't look very hypnotic. But um, I think that was clearly artistic license that he thought we could get away with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize. Yeah, that's interesting, too, because we talk about Brontosaurus 
catching on partly at least in america with the mount the big skeletal mount at am and h mm. but that was yeah. years later that was you know in the early 1900s not late 1800s yeah, yeah. well i actually i have a, a part of my chapter three first half of it is on some other novels second half is on this kind of brontosaurus craze so there's there's quite a few brontosaurus in fiction 1899 and there's another story which is literally a, a very topical satire on the US expeditions looking for giant sauropod skeletons in 1899, obviously Carnegie and the Pitt- Pittsburgh Museum, uh, and also the American Museum of Natural History in Osborne. So mm-hmm. there's you know, this great rush to the West to look for sauropods. There's one short story about, it's called Silas P. Cornu's Divining Rod. It's a kind of, a, it's the parody of, you know, American boorishness by the standards of British readers. Of course, it's published in America as well. So it's more a more parody of West, West and US mm-hmm. rather than kind of the US in general this kind of inventor who always comes up with great inventions, but of all he wants is to find gold. And of course, the joke is he keeps finding things like he finds a dinosaur skeleton. He's like, this isn't gold, this is useless. <laughs> and that novel is set during the gold rush, so it's slightly earlier. So I guess the joke is that actually, from the time period of that story, a giant dinosaur would not have been worth a great deal. But by the 1890s, it's absolutely what all the big philanthropist millionaires want to find. And that's something that is very keyed into that 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 year, 1899, when supposedly on the 1st of July, I think, is it Carnegie's team or is it the American Museum team supposedly find their specimen on the 4th of July, (laughs) (laughs) which, of course, is so fitting and and so suspicious. (laughs) (laughs) Like somebody saw it on the 1st of July. They're like, well, we're not sure yet. Come back. We'll go back in three days (laughs) and really check it out. Bring some fireworks. They definitely know it was a brontosaurus by the fourth day. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's another piece that you mentioned in your book is a journey in other worlds. Yeah. So that's another part of this chapter on kind of relationship between the US and the UK and also on kind of nationalism. So there's a a subgenre in the 1890s of kind of American bombastic utopian novels about the future. So America is certainly on the up at that time. I by America, I'd call it, I mean the US. Mm-hmm. Britain is kind of height of empire, but is a little bit shaky. US is widely recognized to be the future. So there's a lot of very optimistic novels written by people talking about how, you know, America is going to colonize the planet, although maybe it's framed in a kind of more just way than the British colonization. But also <laughs> they're going to colonize other planets. And so there's a surprising... I say surprising them, but there's at least two <laughs> novels where other planets contain dinosaurs. Mm. <laughs> a very kind of largely US team goes over and kind of conquers them in a very sort of symbolic way. Is westward expansion taken to outer space? Mm. They're not they're not subtle with the symbolism and they're, 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 they're quite proud of it, really. And the the most, well, I say the most insane one, they're both quite insane. But JJ uh, Astor the fourth, the famous millionaire who died in the Titanic. Often he's considered the richest man in the world at this time. I've never verified that. Mm. But he certainly was very rich, a realtor, considered himself a bit of an Edison figure. He writes only one novel, Journey in Other Worlds, A Romance of the Future, set in, well, I think it's the year 2000. Oh. And effectively, US scientists have straightened the axis of the Earth to allow for cl- temperate climates. They, as far as they're concerned, that puts Earth, you know, that's Earth done. <laughs> so we have to go go up, go to what's next. It's a bit Elon Musk-like, actually. So they go to... Um, I think it's Jupiter. And the idea is, as you get further away, the planets are earlier in evolutionary development. And so Jupiter has a slightly alternative trajectory, but they also just have regular dinosaurs. Like they, they literally have Triceratops and, and Stegosaurus and, and Iguanodon. The illustration is taken, as I said before, from Hutchinson's book 
of the Iguanodon. So you can see Ast has been getting his dinosaurs from there. This is one of, I think, the first two novels to depict these new discoveries. The other one is, is a British one called Swallowed by an Earthquake in the same year. But Astor <laughs> has his characters, as in all these novels, but, you know, the dinosaurs are shooting targets. They're, they don't present much of a threat. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of shot shot to pieces. But all the characters in the, in the, in the characteristics of this genre are kind of scientist athletes. You know, they're kind of supermen. Who, <laughs> they examine the dinosaur. At one point, they shoot a, shoot a woolly elephant creature. And they say, we must examine its teeth to determine if it's a mastodon or a mammoth. They also eat the Triceratops' heart when they kill it. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so it's really, it's a very disturbing book. But, you know, it's, its symbolism is worn on its sleeve. They, afterwards, they go to Saturn. Aster clearly has some kind of spiritualist views. Saturn is depicted almost like heaven, like a physical heaven hmm. where souls go to. And it's all, it's all wish fulfillment, really. You know, it's like technology will solve all the world's ills uh, and dinosaurs representing that, the past, <laughs> defunctness. The other one, which is, well, they're both really available online, is uh, Gustavus Pope's Journey to Venus. He's yeah. a Catholic homeopath. Yeah, have you, have you read this one? The, we just were talking about that one. That's I was thinking that when you were saying that Jupiter was the earlier version, because we were just in a different interview talking about how Venus Venus was the earlier version of Earth and therefore had dinosaurs on it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's funny Pope, that they came Pope. to opposite directions. <laughs> Pope is beaten out on the other planet dinosaurs thing by a year, as far as I can see. <laughs> Aster is 1894, Pope is 1895. But I think the idea is kind of in the air that other planets are in the past before them. I don't think, I think Aster, you know, they're both pretty plagiaristic. You know, I wouldn't credit them with inventing a great deal. But Pope's one is really insane. It's kind of very juvenile. It's it's just an excuse to see lots of extinct animals kind of get shot and beaten up and fight each other. And it's, it's you know, again, it's a, an American delegation of, oh, there's this British character, of most of his, his role is to talk about how great America is. <laughs> also, Pope is quite clearly a, a bit of an evolution skeptic. He's a bit of a generally kind of free thinker. So a lot of a novel, even though he thinks science is wonderful and he's kind of ultra scientistic, he's also quite clearly not at ease with a lot of scientific developments as well. So it's kind of his, you know, his personal speculations, half children's adventure story, half ultra violence. But again, it is one of the earliest novels to have things like Triceratops in, although he does does, does describe it as a mammal. So (laughs) that shows you Pope's um, kind of idiosyncratic approach towards (laughs) scientific accuracy. They teamed up with aliens as well in this, and they go and just subdue Venus. It's actually the sequel to a novel from the year before. Uh, I think it's Journey to Mars, which I haven't read, mainly because I don't think it has dinosaurs in it. Mm. No, it doesn't. I know it doesn't because that was the what later version of Earth, so that would have things that are more advanced than us, or at least yes. farther in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's Wells's idea, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so unless they're doing that whole like time is a circle thing and we've come back around to dinosaurs, which I guess is possible, then there shouldn't be dinosaurs on Mars at least. <laughs> well, I don't know why Aster chose Jupiter and Pope chose Venus. Right. Yeah. They seem a bit, I mean, they kind of they go between looking like they're telling you their deepest thoughts they've thought about for a long time. I mean, Aster actually says to an interviewer that his book represents some speculations of his own, which he hasn't heard disproven by mainstream scientists. So he, you know, it's kind of partially his kind of venue for getting some baffling speculations out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. <laughs> so going back, Swallowed by an Earthquake, is that one like, um, I'm thinking Journey to the Center of the Earth, but that was way later. It, there's dinosaurs in the middle of the Earth kind of thing? It's it's after Genesis. Genesis Earth is eighteen sixty three or four, one of those two. Oh, okay. So 
swallowed by, so that's much earlier. So a lot of them, obviously there's no dinosaurs in, in Genesis into the Earth. This wouldn't have been seen relevant at that time. Mm-hmm. But uh, swallowed by an earthquake does have dinosaurs. That's 1890. I'm pretty sure it's 1894. So these, that along with Astor's novel, are really, to my knowledge at least, the first two novels have kind of the new dinosaurs depicted in. It's got loads of them. It's again, it's clearly, he's read Hutchinson. It's got all the dinosaurs from Hutchinson. There's a Brontosaurus, which is oddly also kind of villainous. <laughs> this is long before Saville, who has a villain Brontosaurus. But there's just a brief moment where he talks about he doesn't like the look in the glimmering reptilian eye of the Brontosaurus. So I think there was something about Smith's restoration of Brontosaurus, which people thought was a little bit sinister. <laughs> yeah, um, otherwise, I can't really explain it. Something fishy about those Horobots. Swallowby Earthquake is quite, it's again, this is a British author. He's a kind of philosopher, slightly occultist guy, but you don't really get that in the novel. It's a kind of popular, breezy boys' romance. Very much Lost World is very similar to it, actually, even though The Lost World comes out in 1912. Lost World is a much better written book. I think the word swallowed by an earthquake has the word romantic in it about five times a page. It's just kind of really, <laughs> really kind of hack stuff. But it's interesting because the characters fall in, and also there's two female kind of romantic interests. So these two women are, are Italians who are in love with the heroes. I'm not sure they have a single line of dialogue that isn't reported speech. I don't think they have anything in speech marks. They're just, you know, really just props for the action. Wow, it's like the um, first book yeah. knocked to pass the Bechdel test. Like, they only exist yeah. to say things about men. Oh, yeah, no but they don't even talk, let alone talk to each other about <laughs> anything other than men. But yeah, so these characters all fall into a... There's an earthquake in Italy where they're staying, and they fall in underneath the ground, and they discover basically what seems to be in a lost world preserved when the ground caved in maybe millions of years ago, possibly during the Jurassic. So they go through, it's got a semi-chronological kind of, you know, where the geography is chronology. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of going through time in this cavern. Then they get to the classic, you know, the ape men village, which always has to appear in these kind of novels. Mm-hmm. So it seems like 19th century and early 20th century readers rarely wanted to just read about extinct animals. They always had to have, you know, the cavemen who get beaten up. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically what happens. But swallowed by an earthquake, you know, it is pioneering in many ways, but ultimately... It's interesting to us because it has dinosaurs in, but really it's Journey to a Century Earth is, is much more competent and innovative. Swallowed by an earthquake feels like it was written in a bit of a, in a weekend. <laughs> was that was, was there a group of people, like scientists, that thought the hollow earth was full of ancient stuff? Was that ever a thing? I think that idea was rarely mainstream, even by the standards of 19th century science, when obviously there's a lot of fluidity, flexibility. <laughs> I mean, that idea comes as, as you know, well, you know, obviously Sims with his hollow earth. Mm-hmm. This is a, an idea from, what, the 1810s, which is kind of becomes a, an early conspiracy theory. Never really has a great deal of traction. Sims thinks mammoths might survive because they've cut, they live inside the earth and maybe they occasionally come out the holes at the pole to the Arctic. There's always talk in the newspapers of, you know, Smithsonian expeditions looking for dinosaurs in Africa and things. They never really found much detail on to what extent there was money invested in this idea. Eddie Guimont, who I think you've spoken with, he's more knowledgeable about that that than I am. Yeah, it makes me think also, depending on who's reporting it, the Smithsonian very well could go to Africa and look for dinosaur fossils. And (laughs) depending on who hears they're going to Africa to look for dinosaurs, if they're thinking about, you know, Michaela Mbembe running around in Africa, they're like, oh, they must be looking for that and maybe get a little confused in the reporting. I mean, it's quite often presented as a look at what these wacky eggheads are trying now kind of thing. (laughs) They often quote Lewis Carroll's poem, The Jabberwocky, 
recently they do these things to indicate you know that they think it's a bit silly and what you know what scientists will believe anything <laughs> <laughs> but i mean obviously there's there's up and down legitimacy for the idea of dinosaurs surviving but they're they're usually not to my knowledge hiding underneath the earth in any kind of stories which claim credibility mm-hmm. gotcha so reimagining dinosaurs in late Victorian and Edwardian literature, that's not your mm. first book on this subject. You, you've also contributed to the anthology Creatures of Another Age. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you. This, this came out with um, a publisher called Valancourt, who publish kind of out-of-print stuff. They print old Gothic novels, kind of LGBT stuff, mid-20th kind of century things, which are hard to get a hold of. I, I asked if they'd be interested in an anthology collecting various texts about paleontology from the 19th century, you know, poems, short stories, interesting popular science writing. Popular science writing can be quite vivid in the 19th century. And so I put together this anthology, Creatures of Another Age, which has a short story by Arthur Conan Doyle, Blue John Gap, which is about a cave bear surviving. Hmm. It's got poems by Edward Hitchcock, the geologist, his poem, The Sandstone Bird, things like that. It's got um, a very interesting early early time travel I say story, it's it's non-fiction really, but there's a, a piece that was published in Charles Dickens's periodical called Our Phantom Ship on an Antediluvian Cruise. It's not, not written by Dickens himself. It's effectively popular science, but really what it's describing is a boat traveling back through time, through, you know, chronologically back to more or less when, uh, you know, the Silurian kind of what's really more or less the end of time to a Victorian audience. Hmm. And it's kind of innovative I think not non-fiction, but really it's it's a precursor to things like H.G. Wells as the time machine, mm. is of a way it uses effectively what are narrative devices to communicate information in a kind of humorous way about again <laughs> everyone's favourite the Megatherium, uh, and there are some dinosaurs in there. Uh, as I say, dinosaurs are their names come up. No one calls them a dinosaur, mm. <laughs> and they're always pictured as big giant quadrupedal lizards like the Crystal Palace dinosaurs. But yeah, those are the kind of texts I wanted to collect. I suppose have you come across some? Um, the monster of Lake Calamity. No, I don't no. know that one. <laughs> this is actually another kind of jumper on on the 1899 Brontosaurus bandwagon, although it doesn't have a Brontosaurus in it. So I think it's kind of, it has a bit more imagination to it. So this is a short story. came out in Pearson's magazine, a kind of popular magazine, 1899. It's about an expedition to Wyoming. And I think that's the link to the Brontosaurus story is all the, all the information at the time is about. These amazing fossils in Wyoming because actually... Wyoming doesn't make sense for the rest of the story. <laughs> These two scientists go and find a hole, which they think is maybe a Sims hole leading to the centre of the Earth, uh, and out of it washes an Elasmosaurus. <laughs> As I say, why Wyoming doesn't particularly make sense, at least to my knowledge. It's quite dry. They kill it. They kill this Elasmosaurus. So this, this is a kind of horror story. They kill Elasmosaurus, and they find out that it has the ability to basically regenerate. So you, they cut off its head. And they find it kind of heals itself. And so one of the characters, the scientist, is a, a young guy who's very kind of ill. And he dies. And the, the other scientist puts his brain in the Elasmosaurus. Oh, my gosh. And the brain, obviously, it heals. And so he, his mind is in the Elasmosaurus. And at the start, the Elasmosaurus is kind of just, just this young scientist. And he has this vigorous new body, which is almost, almost immortal. But gradually, and the story actually... For the fact that it's insane and very strange <laughs> and very wacky, it's actually reasonably effective because we have this basically degenerating figure. So, I mean, it's, it's very kind of classist and things because effectively Brontosaurus is his you know, scientist's brain. He starts to speak in kind of slang <laughs> as he starts to kind of um, lose his kind of um, heightened heightened mental powers. Mm. 
And eventually he just reverts entirely to an Elasmosaurus and just murders the scientist. And there's a, a quite disturbing ending where it cuts. It's, it's been this cuts this scientist's journal the whole time. So, of course, towards the end of it, it's a bit like, you know, the documents in Resident Evil games where it's like, you know, I've been scratching a lot lately. <laughs> uh, strange sores. So this scientist is starting to be suspicious that his friend is reverting to Elasmosaurus and it cuts. And we have a note from kind of the US military who said they arrived on this science camp and found this Elasmosaurus tearing a man to shreds and then they, they shoot it. But it's a strange one, very, very unique. And as they say, surprisingly effective or at least interesting for a story where an Elasmosaurus brain transplant takes place. That's yeah. one of the most interesting stories in the collection, I think. Wow. Uh, they're not all quite so wacky. <laughs> what year was that one from? 1899. Oh, wow. It's the, mon- the monster of Lake Lamet Tree. It's got its own Wikipedia page, I think. Have you ever seen the movie Tammy and the Teenage T-Rex? <laughs> I've, I've watched a, a review of it. I've never actually seen it. <laughs> Wasn't not... it made because they had a dinosaur model they needed to do something with? <laughs> <laughs> that would make sense. There's no other justification I could think of because yep. it's terrible. But it, it's the only other time I've seen a brain of a human who got injured put into the wow. brain of, you know, the head of a mm-hmm. dinosaur. It would be very interesting to know if that is an idea that independently came up in two <laughs> minds or if it was said read. Lamatry, I think, was republished like in the 70s, maybe. Mm. in an anthology so yeah it's not it was not been entirely out of print so maybe yeah i'm trying to think of what else i've got in there <laughs> i mean i do have i mean there's a very early model for the kind of pulp dinosaur discovered then shot by hunters kind of story called the last dragon which is 1871 and it's you know very simple it's you know there's a boat it's on i think it's offshore kind of east africa or something and they discover a reptilian monster that is kind of implied. I say it's a dinosaur. It's probably a plesiosaurus or something. They they use the term kind of, it's an antediluvian monster of the God knows what period. So you can tell what they're going for. It's very simple. They shoot it basically. But at 1871, that's very early for that kind of, you know, trashy dinosaur story, which has becomes a, a template for, you know, decades. Some people in some place where there's not many white people find a dinosaur and shoot it becomes, you know, a stock story. You have in a kind of you know these kind of magazines by that point, and the last dragon's the earliest one I found of that kind of um, genre. I've got a couple more in there. Some are a bit more sophisticated than that. I've got a, a Jack London story, a relic of the Pliocene, which is you know Jack London's a better writer, but it effectively is still that same story. Someone finds a mammoth in this case. Uh, it sits on his dog, so he shoots it. It sits on his dog, so he shoots it. <laughs> yeah, uh, any excuse to shoot the last of a prehistoric species in like in the early 20th century fiction. <laughs> I had no idea there was so much of this kind of literature so yeah. early on. Yeah, 1870s, that is early. Yeah, as I say, Journey to the Century Earth, 1864, I think it is. But I mean, the, the kind of nonfiction around that time early is, is so vivid. And in many ways, there's kind of quite an easy step between a kind of imagined scene in a work of nonfiction to a straight-up novel like mm. Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth. I mean, one of the writers who's been talked about quite a lot in that sense is Hugh Miller, the Scottish geologist. He's famous for his kind of vivid scenes where he'll be kind of describing... He, he lectures to his audience and his lectures publishes books in the 1850s and, and earlier. And he kind of, you know, acts as if they've gone back in time. He's like, look over there, you can see among the ferns a gigantic reptile. And those kind of things are basically you know he's, he's working with things that fiction writers will just take the next step and just turn it into a story <laughs> rather than popular science and Verne is is on board with that nice so for our listeners was the best place for them to go if they wanted to find out more about you and your work online 
I mean, I suppose either my Twitter, which is admittedly not very coherent repository for my work, at Dr. Underscore R underscore Fallon, or my University of Birmingham homepage actually come up pretty quickly if you type in Richard Fallon, University of Birmingham. Excellent. That's where my publications are listed anyway. Great. Well, thanks so much for chatting with us today. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. I've got a bunch of, I've got a reading list to get through now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. No, I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed talking about, well, any excuse to talk about the monster of Lake Lemetry is eagerly <laughs> taken up. <laughs> thank you so much, Richard. I feel like I have a lot of stories I need to read now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I read through that Venus one. It is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Saturnalia, which was a request from Crow via our Patreon and Discord. So thank you. It was a basal sauropodomorph that lived in the late Triassic in what is now Brazil in the Santa Maria formation of Rio Grande and possibly Zimbabwe in the Pebbly Arcos formation. Back then, those weren't too far apart. Yeah. It had a mix of sauropodomorph and theropod characteristics, so it's been kind of hard to classify in the past. But it was small, with a long neck and a long tail, and short arms. And it had a gracile body. It was estimated to be about five feet or one and a half meters long. Oh, that is small. Mm-hmm. I, that's funny. For some reason, I always imagine it as a sauropodomorph with longer arms. I think I've always heard it was a sauropodomorph, and it just, in my head, was way bigger and had bigger arms yep. than that. Those Triassic animals get weird. They do. The type species is Saturnalia tupaniquum. I'm not entirely sure how that part is pronounced. The species? The species name, yeah. It comes from Portuguese and Guarani, and it's a, quote, endearing way of referring to native things from Brazil. Hmm. That's nice. Yeah. So Saturnalia was named in 1999 by Max Langer and others, and the genus name means carnival in Latin, and that refers to the fossils being found during the feasting period. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, Saturnalia is such a fun concept. Mm -hmm. you know, it goes all the way back to ancient Roman and Greek times. Yeah, yeah, it was a really popular Roman festival dedicated to the Roman god Saturn, and it was originally celebrated on December 17th, and then it was extended to be a whole week of celebration. And in case you're curious, the Greek version of the Roman Saturn is Cronus, for any Greek and Roman mythology buffs out there. And Saturnalia, it was celebrated with a sacrifice at the Temple of Saturn, and there were also banquets, gift-giving, and a lot of parties or carnivals. And people were also allowed to gamble during that week. And they also named a mock king, Saturnalicius Princeps. Gifts could include wax figurines, dice, combs, toothpicks, axes, perfumes, parrots, clothing, books, and a lot more. And sometimes there were verses that went with the gifts, kind of like how we have cards today. 
If some of these things sound familiar, a lot of the Saturnalia customs became customs or influenced Christmas and New Year. Huh. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Now back to the dinosaur. <laughs> the Saturnalia dinosaur was named based on three partial skeletons that were all found in the same area in 1988. The holotype includes a well-preserved, semi-articulated skeleton, vertebrae, pectoral girdle, right humerus, partial right ulna, pelvic girdle, left femur, and most of the right hind limb. Okay, so it's like mostly the hips and the stuff around the hips and a little bit of arm. For the holotype. But then the other skeletons included a partial mandible with teeth and partial skeleton, vertebrae, pectoral girdle, right humerus, right side of the pelvic girdle, most of the right hind limb. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah, you said pectoral girdle for the first one, which is like shoulder blades and stuff. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good. It's nice that they have two that overlap a bunch, too, so you can squash out some of the individual variation. True. And a possible partial femur was found in Zimbabwe that might belong to Saturnalia. Yeah, it's hard to tell from just a partial femur. Yes. Saturnalia was the second dinosaur found in the Carnian Alamoa beds of southern Brazil. And that's one of the oldest strata with dinosaur fossils. The discovery helped show evidence of widespread distribution of early sauropodomorphs in the late Carnian. About 230 million years ago, roughly. Mm-hmm. And in 2003, Max Langer published even more details about the anatomy of Saturnalia. They found that the first metatarsal was much shorter than the second and third ones. The first one was about 60% the length of the second and 55% the length of the third. There were also scars and other traces of muscle attachments on the body. And they found that Saturnalia had limbs adapted to running, more so than typical sauropodomorphs. Saturnalia could walk on two or four legs, but it was probably bipedal when it was moving quickly. Especially since you said it has short arms. Yes, although... It probably was not an obligatory biped. Meaning it spent some time on all fours? It probably walked on two legs more often than other prosauropods to run away from predators or hunt for small prey. You got a sauropod hunting? Like I said, had some theropod characteristics. <laughs> oh, that's, that's the theropod part of it, I see. <laughs> <laughs> Saturnalia's gait was, quote, probably somewhere between that of a fully bipedal dinosaur like Coelophysis and that of forms such as Platyosaurus, which were mainly quadrupedal, becoming bipedal only at high speeds, end quote. In 2017, Mario Bronzati and others studied the endocast of Saturnalia. They looked at the flocular fossa lobe, the FFL, which is, quote, part of the systems operating to control eyes, neck, and head movements, end quote. There's apparently a smaller volume of FFL in sauropods, and in the past, that's been thought to be linked to sauropods being quadrupedal. The idea is that you need more balance control when you're bipedal versus when you're quadrupedal, and that balance involves the FFL and inner ear. But the FFL volume has been found to vary in other dinosaur endocast studies, including theropods. So FFL may not be related to how they moved. It's possible that a well-developed flocculus could be linked to predatory behavior because it helps the dinosaur move its neck and skull quickly. Yeah, I think we've heard that before. Mm -hmm. I really like the word flocculus, by the way. <laughs> it's a good <laughs> Very one. fun to say. <laughs> they also studied the teeth of Saturnalia and found recurved teeth with small serrations. That does seem pretty predator-type mm -hmm. teeth. 
So based on studying Platyosaurus and Saturnalia, it's possible that FFL went down in bipedal sauropodomorphs before they evolved to be quadrupedal, and it may have been linked to their herbivorous diet. In 2019, Mario Bronzati and others studied the skull remains of Saturnalia, and they CT scanned the skull bones of one of the paratypes. They found that the small skull may be related to, quote, an increased efficiency for predatory feeding behavior, allowing fast movements of the head in order to secure small and elusive prey, end quote. And that supports the endocast study that had been done earlier. Saturnalia had a short skull. It was lightweight. It was about 3.9 inches or 10 millimeters long and small compared to the rest of its body. So to recap, the small skull of Saturnalia helped it with its long neck, which helped later sauropods eat plants that other animals couldn't reach, the long neck that is, and then eventually gave sauropods that advantage and helped them grow so large. Saturnalia may have been able to move its head quickly and go after small prey. It had heterodont teeth, where some were more leaf-shaped, and others were higher and coarsely serrated. So, Saturnalia may have been an omnivore, eating lizards, mammals, insects, as well as plants. And our fun fact of the day is that in 2019, a nest of about 20 to 30 fossilized dinosaur eggs was found on Christmas morning. Oh, and we didn't notice it at the time. I guess we were busy. <laughs> I guess so. Family festivities. But I think that is a great Christmas morning surprise. Mm-hmm. And something worth mentioning since this episode comes out not too long before Christmas. The specific dinosaur fossils were found during construction of a middle school in China. And they're still in pretty good shape and even look like egg shapes. They're not in tiny pieces like a lot of fossilized eggs are when they're found which is especially impressive because they were found after using explosives to excavate the area. So, Mm. (laughs) yeah, the explosives didn't really do much damage. Then the construction crew were like, those might be dinosaur eggs, and called up the local museum, and they came out and said, yeah, those are dinosaur eggs. They were found in the Jiangxi province, but they don't know the age. Jiangxi actually has rocks aging from the early Triassic all the way to the late Cretaceous. Wow. So the entire span of dinosaur history. That's impressive. Yeah, but as far as I could tell, the only actual dinosaurs, so that's fossils of any type, including you know all sorts of marine things or mammals or whatever, but the only dinosaurs I saw in the paleobio database are from the Cretaceous. Hmm. For now. Yes, I've, they'll probably find more later. And they might have already found them and they're just not on the paleobio database. But... The early guess put them at about 70 to 130 million years old, which is a very wide range, 60 million years. But that does put them sometime in the Cretaceous, just not very specific. I couldn't find any update online. It's often difficult to find updates on Chinese things through American internet. But apparently, the local Dayu County Museum came to excavate the fossils, but I can't find that museum anywhere. Apparently, it's in southwest Jiangxi, and that's where Dayu County is, but I don't know. It's not on our map, and I couldn't find it on Google or on any of the travel websites with like lists of things to do, so who knows. But the article mentions that the eggs are about two millimeters thick, which is pretty typical for a lot of dinosaur eggs, and my quick internet analysis of the few pictures I could find of the eggs, they look long and skinny pretty theropod shaped you know that sort of elongatulithid shape 
I have no idea which theropod, but there is an oviraptorid named Jiangshisaurus, who I guess is a possible candidate. Mm-hmm. So they could be oviraptorid eggs. The museum director, too, from the Dayu County Museum, said that the green hue of the eggs is something they've seen with other Cretaceous fossils, which I think is probably where that Cretaceous estimate came from. If there's a museum director, there's probably a museum. I, yeah, I know there is, but I can't find it. <laughs> I wish I could find it. It's like, if anybody knows where this is, let me know so I can put it on our map, but I can't find it. The really fun thing is, so the eggs are green from the fossilization, and they're in a red sandstone mix, which means they found a green and red dinosaur nest on Christmas morning, (laughs) which is pretty awesome. That's funny. Well, that wraps up this episode of Ino Dino. Thank you for listening. If you want even more dinosaur goodies, check out our recently updated website, inodino.com. Sabrina put a lot of work into it. It looks very nice. We also have some excellent guest posts. And uh, happy holidays to everybody. Thank you for listening. And until next time. Good day.